This week on Overtime, we end our Ezra series. We take a look at the person of Ezra. We talk repentance. We talk about how the love of God exposes our sin. We talk about restoration that's found in him. Make sure you like, subscribe. Let's get it. Welcome to Center City Overtime, a weekly podcast where we take a little more time to dive into Sunday's message and Sunday's football game. And um, it's a little bit of a sad day today. You like you gotta have to now. I feel like I'm teaching you. You gotta learn how to pull the positives out because we are in a season of rebuilding. And now I gotta be careful because like I'm saying we. I, That's yeah, good. I am, but I haven't been accepted yet. So <laughs> uh, I'm trying to make sure that I'm really respectful of the process. But um, the quarterback play had moments of it, just almost moments and and just snippets of greatness. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it kind of reverted back to penalties and not being able to call a play in time. Dom, you were there. What's kind of the sense in the room, producer Dom? How did it feel being in the stadium? It How felt great, but all I hear about is people dogging on uh, Bryce Young. So <laughs> I think I'm one of the few people in the stadium that actually am supporting him. Yeah. Well, I mean, it sounded like there were a lot of Vikings fans in that stadium. Oh, there was 100% a lot of Vikings fans. Did you see the clip of the Eagles fans refusing to let the Tampa Bay flag over their head? No. It's hysterical. There's this 200-foot flag that they raise in the stands, and there was Eagle fans just holding on. <laughs> they would not let. It was hysterical. This week? I don't know if it was this okay. week, but I just it came across my feed, and it was funny. That is funny. Yeah. Well, I, there was a moment there. I'm not going to drop any names, but someone from our church who follows the Panthers fell into a rumor trap and texted me that the coach had been let go last night. And I was like, we're going to have so much to talk about on the podcast, but it was just a rumor. And that person has since apologized and I have given them a list of trustworthy sources. <laughs> so here is, um, here's my fear. Cause I've seen it happen before. Um, we had a veteran quarterback throw for over 300 yards behind that same offensive line. And we haven't seen Bryce young have that type of success. So, it just seems like he needs to find a rhythm mm-hmm. behind that offensive line. And even just with NFL play calling, because it's a lot different than college. And when they're struggling to get out of the, the huddle in time, when mm-hmm. there's a lot of like miscommunication happening on the field, some of that is just he's a rookie and he's going to have yeah. to learn. And, I mean, the team, yes, Andy Dalton did more, but the team also had a ton of false starts that week. Yeah that hurt them. The receivers are not separating from their defenders very quickly. Like they're, it's not all on Bryce. No, without a doubt. Even though he's learning. And that concludes this week's Panthers segment. Gotta fly in the studio today. (laughs) (laughs) Fly, Eagles, fly. Just (laughs) segue. It's gonna drive me crazy. It's gonna drive me nuts the whole thing too, yep. Okay, well, from football to Ezra. Let's go. (laughs) This week, we finally meet Ezra. And um, we also say goodbye to him. This is our last week of Ezra. But I thought since you've been really in this book for a while now, both personally and then preparing these messages, what are, how would you characterize Ezra, the person? Ezra's an interesting uh, character. Um, so from a practical place, we know his occupation is that of a scribe, which, again, in that day and age was critical. We're not you know, well before the time of copiers and FedEx and Kinko's. Yeah, you threw out Kinko's yesterday, and I was like, I think half the room doesn't know what Kinko's is. It's crazy. It's amazing how technology has changed everything. But 
again, back to um, the idea of Ezra's occupation, um, a, a king would make a decree. He would need scribes to write that decree down, to copy it, to send out to other provinces in order to have historical record of that. Matter of fact, last week when we talked about check the records and how the enemies of God asked the king to check the record of Israel, he actually had his uh, people check the, the writings of the scribes. Um, so Ezra's role was super important. And then specifically, Ezra was known as the scribe whose focus was the Torah. Um, so he spent his life interpreting and teaching the Torah. So his heart was that once this temple was done, he would make his way to Israel and be the one that's kind of engaging the people in the teaching and interpretation of scripture. So that's kind of what we see in the character of Ezra. And what exactly was he going? I mean, I know he was going to teach, but he was also beautifying yes. the temple. What does that mean? So the king had sent with um, Ezra several pieces of um, artifacts that would adorn the temple. So they were different things taken from within Babylon that actually uh, what the king did was he collected all the things that were taken out of the original temple and he was returning them. So Ezra was kind of putting the finishing touches on what the people had built. Yeah. And I like it's so interesting because we've seen a lot of celebration in the book of Ezra. Yeah. Like we saw celebration when the foundation was first laid. We saw that um, celebration even before they started building just to be getting back. Even the celebration that was mixed with weeping and yet it's interesting to me that when we get to this point where the temple is finally built, you would expect or I would expect there to be some sort of like ribbon cutting ceremony. And yet what we find instead is there's a lot of weeping because Ezra gets back and he finds out that it's not exactly, I don't know if it's what he thought it was, but that the people have not been living according to what God asks of them. And, um, and I thought you made a really interesting point if I can get to it, took so many notes, I got to scroll a lot today, um, that Ezra coming and his, um, his teaching of the word of God, just his being a man of God there, it brought out, um, it revealed the sin in the people who were there, which seems unexpected to me. Yeah, so remember, Ezra didn't call their sin out. They confessed Basically, Ezra gets there, and the first thing he's, um, he's um, confronted with is that there's sin in the land. I think that that's a critical point, because the idea that I feel like is, is kind of woven through this passage, and not just this passage, we see it in Isaiah, we see it in John, we see it in the life of Jesus, we see it in the life of some of the prophets, that there are moments where um, the love of God is showcased the, the purpose of God, the presence of God is experienced and sin is revealed in us. Mm -hmm. um, again, you see it in Isaiah uh, when he is taken by the Lord to a vision and he sees the glory of God filling the, the temple and the first thing out of his mouth is, woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Sin is revealed. It's not that the vision pointed out the sin in Isaiah. It's not that the... Uh, Ezra shows up and starts calling people out for their nonsense. But it's when we find children of God functioning in the role that God's called to, spiritual leadership takes its place. The love of God exposes the sin in us. Yeah, I am. Um, it's interesting because when I've read this in the past, I've seen it as people were ready to tattletale because it's, you know, the leaders who are like, Ezra, this is what's going on. 
and I love the way that you taught it yesterday that it's like, I mean, the leaders were involved in this, we read. And At the so, highest level. Um, so it was more confession than tattletaling, for lack of a better term, which kind of totally shifts my understanding of what's going on there. And it's true, we see it elsewhere. And I guess my question is, I don't even have a fully formulated question because this whole concept of repentance is such a, it feels a little bit like a landmine because typically when you think of like the scary street preachers, they're the ones who are saying repent, the end is near. And yet here we see that it's actually love that calls out repentance. So it's so opposite. But, um, but how have you seen this just like maybe in your experience as a youth pastor, as a father, just in times walking with people, how do you see the love of God drawing this out? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so from a really practical place, I've seen it a lot around altars um, mm -hmm. where people have cut away for a week, have decided to, to spend some time focusing on the heart of God. God shows up when the scope of a, of a worship service or in a, in a moment, and there is a, uh, a, it's almost like a lipo moment where people recognize I've been trying to hide this thing for years and it makes no sense to hide no more. Um, it's a little tough to really, because it's not the same for every people. I've heard people sitting down with scripture and they read a passage and it's a passage they've read a million times. Even my own personal revelation, like when I came to Jesus, it was through, you know, John 3.16, one of the most overquoted passages of all scripture. But for some reason, that moment, that passage enabled by the spirit of God speaking in and through my heart uh, brought about a revelation that I am far and distant from the Lord. And like we like to move from that sorrow quickly to mm -hmm. repentance and joy, but just know that sorrow is what motivated the repentance in me. I, you know, again, I, I love the way Isaiah says it because that idea is woe is me. Like I've come to the understanding that I can keep trying doing this by myself, but I'm broken. Like I'm broken and that sorrow hits him hard and his response is to just this confession of this, not just his sin, but the sin of the land. And, um, yeah, so I don't know if that answers your question, but I do feel like sometimes I don't know if I fully asked a question, so yeah. I think you did a great job. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but whether it's the revelation of Scripture, sometimes it's in moments of worship, sometimes it's in moments of prayer. Um, I, I remember, uh, I, and I'm, I didn't ask permission to share their testimony, but there was one person I was talking to uh, that I loved their, their story of their coming to Jesus, and it happened at, a, uh, it happened at their job. And they were just sitting in the cubicle. And for some reason, that moment, the Holy Spirit just wrecked them. And they found themselves at their knees at that point, at that cubicle, giving their lives uh, back over and surrendered to the Lord. So, yeah, it just depends on how the Spirit, he will use whatever's around you to call attention to that sin. Yeah, and so I want to kind of sit here in the, the personal repentance and then kind of zoom out a little bit and and talk about kind of leadership and what we see in Ezra. But I guess I have a question too, because we can have these powerful moments and particularly in Pentecostal environments like the one that we're in, we can have very emotional, powerful, like they are supernatural. I'm not saying emotional to say that they're not supernatural, like, but they're just very big moments. Yeah. And then it can sometimes be hard to walk out, like to say, in church on Sunday, I raised both my hands, the Holy Spirit convicted me, I truly repented, and then walk out and not know, like, what do I do now? 
going back into the same home that I've lived in with the same family that I've been living with to the same job that I've been working in. Um, what, what can we learn maybe from the people in Ezra? We can go to Isaiah. We can look at Peter, who you talked about on Sunday, um, to kind of take that moment and make it an actual, like, commitment of That's repentance. That's a good question. So true repentance um, may be initiated at the altar, but it's never expressed fully at an altar. Mm -hmm. True repentance requires not just the admission that I'm far and this is not right, but it's a turning away. And that turning away from those behaviors requires time. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, I think uh, repentance is something that it's often initiated and not as often fully realized. Um, so it just really depends on, again, I, I, we can walk down all kind of, I've dealt with people who have walked out of moments like that where repentance is initiated. And uh, wow, this fly is really yeah. going to drive me nuts, but it is what it is. We're just going to live with it right now. But they've uh, navigated through seasons of repentance. Uh, they're, they're motivated in the moment, like you had mentioned. And then it's to go home and remove every computer from uh, private spaces, uh, talked with parents through helping their kid remove televisions for their rooms and laptops from areas where they can, uh, you know, do the thing that they were doing in secret. Uh, for some people, it's walking away from that moment, empowered by the Spirit of God to make the phone call and to leave that relationship. Um, for other people, it's a change of occupation. Like, the practical aspect of repentance really depends on what it is that you are struggling and walking, mm -hmm. with, uh, walking around with. And it does require, I believe, not just a moment to spark that I need to change, but also the empowerment of the Spirit to live that change out. Yeah, that reminds me of a passage that you didn't preach on Sunday, but we kind of talked about it throughout the week a little bit, just as you were writing this message, that Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, yes. gauge it out, or if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And I think we live in a time where we feel like, he can't possibly mean that, that's really harsh. And yet we are to an extent called to be really harsh when the Holy Spirit enables us to see this um for lack of a better word, depravity in us, that we do walk away and we do those practical things, that it's not just a supernatural change of heart, but it's like, now that I know this, what are the practical things yeah. that maybe they may seem as, as crazy as cutting your hand off? Um, and I, I just feel like we tend, to, um, we tend to just water that down a little bit and be like, oh, I'm going to try harder, um, which is good. Trying is good, but... It can be really, you can be really called to practical action after an altar moment like we had on Sunday. Well, you have to be careful because if you um, find yourself in a place where you are sensing that sorrow and your first response is, I need a change. But then as you consider the change, you start doing things like, well, I mean, I can still do that. Or, uh, well, I, I just really deserve that. Or it really can't be what, what, what you're actually showcasing is not you felt bad in the moment, but it's not true repentance. Mm -hmm. True repentance, according to what we read in Scripture, is a radical trend. It's 180. It's not 90 degrees. It's 180 degrees. If you were talking one way, you are committed to talking another way. If you were walking one way, you're committed to walking another. It requires humility. It requires brokenness. It requires maturation. Um, often it requires accountability mm -hmm. um, and a good, strong accountability 
culture and community that's going to hold your feet to the fire. Um, otherwise, in love. It, in love, yeah, because otherwise it becomes, you know, hey, I really feel that God is asking me to, I don't know, quit vaping. Let's just use that as mm -hmm. an example. Um, if you don't go home and get rid of your vapes, there's a really good chance you're going to be back next week and the excuse is going to be, well, I mean, I, it's not too bad. I, it, you know, I, I'll get it next time. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. it's, it's, I felt sorrow, but I didn't necessarily experience repentance. Um, so kind of along those lines, what would you say to someone who really has experienced heart change and yet, whether it's because of the way addiction wires our brains and a lot of times God heals through process and doesn't immediately make you not addicted to that thing that you are repenting of or just habits and patterns, you do hit a point where you, you really are engaged, you really want to change, you've maybe taken some of those extreme actions and yet you find yourself that first time you've done again that thing that you said, God, I'm not going to do this anymore. What would you say to someone in that, in that place? Again, conviction versus shame. Mm -hmm. Conviction always draws us closer to the Lord and shame drives us further apart. So I would say, is the spirit of God still speaking? Um, I had a good friend that had uh, an addiction to um, nicotine. So got saved, loved the Lord, um, but just, I mean, legitimately quit a drug habit, quit all kind of things, changed his community cycle, like circle, was just tearing it up for the kingdom of God, just loving the Lord, telling all his friends about Jesus, but had such a struggle with cigarettes. And I remember... Um, He'd walk out of uh, church on Wednesday night. We'd all go hang out. We're in our early 20s at this point. And we'd go to like uh, Wendy's or something or, or Denny's, not Wendy's, Denny's, <laughs> and uh, be there till 2 o'clock in the morning because they never get your food on time. And uh, I remember there'd be several times where he'd get up and I'd watch him sneak out. And I just felt compelled. He's one of my best friends to this day, but I felt compelled to follow him out. I'd sit next to him on the stoop as he smoked. And I remember every time he would smoke, he felt the conviction of the spirit. Mm -hmm. To me, um, years later, we've had conversation about it. I was okay with it because there was still that conviction. Like there was still that pulling and he knew. Now, again, it took him a couple months but eventually he was able to kick that habit. Mm -hmm. He never grew comfortable with it again. And I think that's where people struggle. And, and it, unfortunately, that's the, the nature of addiction, right? But when you start growing comfortable with it and what you're doing now, uh, and this is where it gets really scary, is that addiction has you questioning what you experience now because of the comfort nature of it all and oh that was fake that wasn't a real deal I'll figure something out or this is okay I don't know why everybody's making a big deal of it we've quieted the voice of conviction mm -hmm. and that's where it gets a little scary yeah and I just want to make sure kind of this goes back two weeks talking about the the enemy or the haters if you will that I do think that's one of those places where we have an enemy that tries to come in when you've had this real moment and yet the struggle is real and you're still human and tries to bring that shame where God is only bringing conviction, um, just to know like that can be real change even if it's still a struggle. Because I know even in my own faith journey, there have been times where I've been like, oh, I just did that thing again. It must not have been God working. Like I may as well give up. And yet that's not at all what God was doing in mm -hmm. my life. He was, he was drawing me into that transformation and still forgiving me in that moment when I wanted to condemn myself. Yeah, when Paul's talking to the Church of Corinth, he uses the phrase um, sorrow, and he really draws a distinction between good sorrow and bad sorrow. 
So I want to make sure that we're really clear because we do tend to lean into the, if you're feeling bad at all, if there's sorrow at all, it must not be from the Lord. And yet Paul would say there is a good sorrow that draws us close. That's conviction. Mm -hmm. There is a bad sorrow or a worldly sorrow that leaves us further. That's shame. And learning how to navigate that early on in your faith experience is critical. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. Um, so then we've kind of talked about how God's love will reveal that sin in us. And um, then I didn't segue, but we just started talking about repentance, which is next. But I want to sit for a little while in the last part of this message because the reality is that in our own power, we don't have the ability to overcome whatever it is that we're fighting, no matter how convicted we feel about it. And so you talked about how God's love restores us. And um, I wonder if you would just talk a little bit about what that restoration means, like what oh. it means to be, you know, just a simple, simple question. Well, the way that I see it, um, it's not even restored to how you were, but all things are made new. The promise of the gospel, and I think we lose sight of this, Jesus didn't say, hey, I just came to save you from your sins so that you can feel good about yourself. He says, I came to give you life that you would have life and have it more abundantly, that he is restoring you to your original intent. The original intent was that we would be fruitful and multiply. Like that's mm -hmm. biblical truth from the beginning. Like that was the picture we see in the garden is, is this relationship of intimacy between God and humanity that purpose was being found. You know, people are like, oh, work is the product of sin. When the truth is we see actual work happening mm -hmm. before sin steps into the picture, Adam knew what he was doing. He understood his identity. He knew who he, who he was as a child of God. Uh, God introduces Eve and as a helpmate to Adam, and I know we hate that phraseology and we can talk about that original language till we're blue in the face, but the bottom line is I think we don't like the language because we misunderstand the idea that you don't need help unless you're weak and 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 have an area of weakness. So God doesn't add weakness to encourage your weakness. He adds strength. So this is a beautiful picture of where Adam is weak, Eve is strong, and collectively we see a beautiful union between man and woman and God and purpose and reason and it's life and it's life to the fullest. And creation too, and I creation. would throw in. Oh, yeah. no, Absolutely. So I believe that that is what God has intended for those who he loves, which is all of us, right? Mm -hmm. So I love the picture that when Jesus comes, he says, no, I came to give you life and more abundantly that in my head, what it points to is the idea that God has this picture of what life could be for me and salvation restores me to that picture. Mm -hmm. And I've always, I've just always loved that. So I love that that question. Yeah, I, I love that idea enough. of um, that. It's not like restoration of you as sinless the moment you were born or something like that. But it's the restoration of what God's vision always was for creation, including you. Um, and I think it's an important picture because you may be uh, hanging out on a podcast today, and you've navigate years worth of bad decisions and brokenness, and the result of that seems to be steeped on you and because the enemy's a liar he'll have you identified by those things and what we end up with is this idea that god can save me but i'm still kind of handicapped to my past and i just need you to hear me the beauty of restoration means that god works in yesterday today and forever so he is able despite your past to put you in places that 
you don't deserve to be. That's just the beauty of the God that we serve. And that's what it means to have a life and have it to the fullest. So uh, when we are faithful to repent, he is faithful to restore. And in that restoration, there is life and life abundant for you. Yeah, that's so good. It would be a good place to end, but we're not ending. No, we don't need to. It's just, um, yeah. Yeah, it was just like, I was like, oh, what a great close. And I was like, no, I have a whole other line of questions. <laughs> yeah, hit me. Um, so I also want to look at this idea of repentance kind of from Ezra's point of view because yep. Ezra wasn't perfect. He was a human, so there was sin in his life. But in, in what we get in the story, Ezra is not guilty of the sin for which he is really weeping going to the Lord, it says face down, he was praying for the people around there. And so you brought up this idea of leaders carrying both this sorrow and then like acting out this repentance on behalf of others in their lives. And I think it's really easy to think, oh, well, now I can stop watching because they're going to just be talking to other pastors. Or, um, But I, I think this can be true in family. Like yes. there are so many places yes. where this can happen. And it's not something that I, like I think that we feel sorrow sometimes for people, but don't I, I don't think it's something that we're taught right now. Like what does that mean as a leader, whether that's a leader of your children or your family or or your business, or if you are in some sort of ministry, um, to repent on behalf of the people around you. Yeah, so we don't just see that in Ezra. And remember, Ezra goes to the point that he pulls his hair out and starts pulling his beard out. Um, we also see it in the first several verses of the book of Nehemiah, right? Mm -hmm. So Nehemiah hears that the city's burning. And the first thing he does is he gets into this place that he begins to repent for the people. They didn't even confess a sin to Nehemiah. He just knew that if the gates were burning, the people must have disobeyed and they had. So I say that to say we often see, specifically in the Old Testament, but a couple times in the New Testament, we see leaders who are willing to repent on behalf of the people. And what I love about it is often they're the first to repent and it draws those who actually participated in a mm -hmm. sin into a season of repentance. They model it. And uh, I, it goes back, uh, we talked about this last week and I think the week before that, but there's a, uh, a scripture I refer to quite a bit that talks about how we celebrate with those who celebrate and mourn with those who mourn. That idea of mourning is that <clears throat> as I mourn for the sin that is just destroying the people around me, the hope is that in some of my mourning, I'm drawing other people to that repentance mm -hmm. and mourning. Um, and I think that that's okay. I think it's actually a really healthy look at spiritual leadership. So whether it's spiritual leadership at the home, spiritual leadership at your job, spiritual leadership in your neighborhood, spiritual leadership at your church, that there are seasons where you just know. Um, you know, I'm currently walking through a season where I'm seeing some of the depravity of sin um, just riddling some of the people around me and I want to be uh, careful here because I'm not talking about any of our staff or anything of that nature. Um, Thanks for that. We walked out Sunday and I was like you were vague enough that people might think that it's anyone on our team. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, and, and it's but not we've even, all got sin. Yeah and it's not even one like it's a mm -hmm. it's I mean there's five or six people right now that I'm, I'm just kind of in relationship with that are walking through tough seasons and it's brought me to a point where even this morning like I'm spending time in 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 repentance for something that I'm not actively involved in, but I'm seeing navigating the people around me. And so it requires humility from spiritual leadership. It re requires discernment from spiritual mm -hmm. leadership. It requires an ear that's attuned to the voice of God. Um, you know, again, 
I'm now that we're done with Ezra, I'm personally walking through Nehemiah, even though that's not where we're going. Uh, I'm personally walking through Nehemiah. So yeah, yeah, who knows? <laughs> um, and in the first couple of chapters, the first thing we see is Nehemiah's response to the gates burning is first thing he does is he falls on his face in mm -hmm. repentance. The second thing he does is he begins to re remind God of his covenant with his people. So he starts walking through the word. Then he makes a request known. The request is filtered through the word. And then lastly, he prays this audacious prayer of uh, favor. Give me favor with the king, right? So what I see modeled there is good spiritual leadership is willing to hurt when people hurt, to mourn when people mourn, and to help lead people through the process of repentance that then leads to a return of focus on the word, making requests known, filtered through the word, and then ultimately believing that God is going to bring favor uh, to do the thing that he's calling us to do. Mm -hmm. So... I think it's critical. I think it's missing in 2023. There's too many pastors that are willing to chastise and not enough pastors that are willing to pray and to mourn and to help people walk through their brokenness. Yeah, I had not thought about it till right now, but we even see Jesus do this. Absolutely. When he weeps over Jerusalem. Absolutely. And it's just like, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you like a mother hen gathers her chicks. Absolutely. Like, um, there is such a model of that kind of leadership in Christ who then went on to lay his life down not long after for Jerusalem and the rest of us. Um, but yeah, I do think that's something that we're, we can be quick to distance ourselves from the people we lead when there is time that, um, that you're seeing some of that. And instead, God calls us to draw close to God and to, to draw close to them, not necessarily in a, like, to use your bike riding analogy, I'm all over the place today, sorry. Not in the, like, just keep doing what you're doing and it'll be fine and God loves you, but no. like, but to draw close and to help with that correction and, and just be in it with people, which I think sometimes, I don't know, you see leaders who don't want to be in it with people. And, I, and if, if you don't want to be in it with people, I don't know what we're doing. Um, so I don't, I don't know for the f 14 people who watch this, if one of you are a <laughs> pastor, like, I just need you to hear me. I feel more compelled than ever. There will be a, a resurrection of shepherds in the scope of the pastorship. God hasn't called you to build a 501c. We need them, but like, like this, it's 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 frustrating the way that I've seen shepherds just discard sheep, mm -hmm. and all for the sake of building this thing. So I think we need to, and not, it's not just pastors. So I'll get off. I'll get off that for a second. But like, even within the scope of church community. There is an expectation, there has to be an expectation that God will bring people into your community that are far from him. And when they come close, it is our job to do the work, um, empowered by the spirit to partner with God in the restoration of people. What else are we here to do? And if that's not a healthy part of what you're doing, if that's not a part, healthy part of what you're living, I just think we're missing it. Yeah, yeah, okay. Kind of switching gears. We've been in Ezra for five weeks now, five or six weeks. Yeah. I can't remember. You were in Ezra a little bit before that yep. as, um, as God brought this to mind. As we kind of close the book for now on Ezra, what are some of the big takeaways that you're taking personally and then for the church? Yeah, I think there was a lot of conversation about how to handle the haters. I think that's critical. Um, Every time we say that, I get the Will Smith stuck in my head. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the haters mad because they got four seats at the Lakers. <laughs> um, no love for the haters. That's right. Anyway, keep going. <laughs> uh, 
Um, so I, I think there's, there's a lot of that that I'm taking with me. Um, personally, there's a lot of shaping of spiritual leadership in Ezra that I think is critical that I've been taking with me um, that I'm also seeing extended in Nehemiah. So God is definitely like fixating mm -hmm. my eyes towards some of that. Um, that idea of repentance is uh, one that just I'm living with right now. So I think that that'll be a big takeaway from this book, but also that God is calling normal people to build extraordinary things for his kingdom's sake. Mm -hmm. And I, my prayer is that out of this, we will see a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, people look back and say, do you remember when we did that series? God planted this in my heart. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm already hearing some of that now, so that's exciting. But I think that that's some of the bigger takeaways. Yeah. What about you? Um, you know, there's a lot. I think one of the things God's showing me is that building happens in stages yeah. and not to get ahead of yourself, that, um, that it's worth celebrating a foundation being laid and um, just to take things in the right time, not to be afraid of the next stage, but not to, not to rush to it um, would be, I think, just personally what I feel like he's reminding me, maybe because I'm almost done with seminary and I'm so ready to be done. <laughs> I'm like, two and a half months True is going to kill me. But um, yeah, just kind of that trust God with the timing. And then the other thing that's just stuck with me is those people who wept because they saw the glory of Solomon's temple and didn't see that same glory and their understanding in the second temple who actually had the privilege of building the physical space where Jesus the Messiah would be dedicated like just to remember not to trust what I think Come is on. great and to trust that whatever God's doing he's going to he's going to do way more than I could ask or imagine through my obedience to step in and, and do whatever my role is in that um, but I'm already on to the next series so okay I wasn't sure if we were going to go into it or not where are we headed I, I don't want to say the word because you, you say it better, but <laughs> let me just preface it and then you can say the word. Um, I, I have off, no deeper training. I just think it's a fun word to say. Yeah. So I got off the stage yesterday um, after the sermon and went out to the lobby and got in my car. And the first thing I did was I took a deep breath. I feel like this series has been strong, heavy series. And uh, even in worship, I just felt this, for lack of a better term, there was this moment of release, like we're finishing the series, we're walking out of this season, take a deep breath. And as I was praying through, kind of looking at what's next, I cannot get my head away from that phrase of take a breath, which brings me to this Hebrew word that mm -hmm. we I misquote all the time. So I'm going to have <laughs> you say it. So that I mean, we I don't know if I'm doing it right, but ruach. Ruach. Yeah. Sounds, you sound like a Klingon. Um, but this, this word ruach, if, if you it, it shows up all over scripture. Mm -hmm. um, the breath of God showcased from creation to revelation, from Old Testament to New Testament, from prophets to disciples, from uh, uh, David to Jesus. Like you just see this phrase over and over. And I just felt really strongly that it's time to take a, a deep breath and allow mm -hmm. the spirit of God to fill us again. So that's where we're heading. And we start this week with creation and I can't wait. Yeah. I'm really excited. Yeah. It's going to be good. So we'll be right back here. Yeah. We'll have to practice. Yeah. That Spanish. I got to throw that Spanish roll of the R. Feel so left out when people do that. It's probably wrong, but it sounds more right. Anyway. 
Well, we'll be right here at 9 o'clock and 11. We'd love to see you then.